Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Well, here we are. Here we are. We've been thrashing about for the last week. Trying yes. to get someplace. Some thrashing. Some it's thrashing. Been a, it's been a thrashing week. Yeah, because you've been... In build hell. In build hell. In the I've, pain cave. In the pain cave, yeah. I've... I've been avoiding the pain cave because sometimes my brain will work things out in the background. Yeah. I've got a background process running that's slowly making sense. Yeah. You have a little bit of of CPU allocated a background thread. Or maybe a lot. I don't know. It's just I'm unaware of it. Um, yeah. I was thinking about that, that, that maybe we do have to understand yeah, where things are broken in order to come up with a, a reasonable mental model for them. Yeah. You know? And and that's what I think both you and I are struggling with. And yeah. apparently other people on the internet, because I've, <laughs> I've gotten periodic messages that say, yep. There are other people in the same boat that, struggling with the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that cannot pretend that they understand what Gradle is doing. Yeah. But, you know. Anyway, we've complained about that enough yes, so yeah. far. We don't, we don't have any new insights other than possibly got to understand how it's broken before you can understand how to create a new mental model. Yeah. But, um, and you said Scala 3 is today? I think Scala 3 is today. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I just, I mean, having it like seemed, a release party. So it seemed like, you know, they were considering new features <laughs> and I was going, oh, well, we're not going to see Scala 3 for a year if we're still... <laughs> Maybe Adrian was like, Martin, you got to stop. No, we cannot put in new, new, uh, new language for exception handling. <laughs> like made him, made him stop. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Scala three, I'm, I'm excited to switch to it. I think there's a lot of really nice stuff in it. And, um, yeah, I think that, that when combined with other, other things in the ecosystem, like Zio, I think it's going to be pretty amazing, pretty amazing, um, way to build code what's your favorite scala 3 feature um or features i the thing that has been most evident in our plane with it Mm -hmm. is having the type system actually based on a calculus Mm -hmm. gives you some some really interesting kind of usability things that you that i don't have in scala 2 remember when we there was some place where, where we got this like type error and it was like, how in the world did it know that? And I guess we were all kind of stunned by stunned. How this is different. It was just a super useful compiler. Yeah. Um, And I think you can do that when you actually have kind of algebraic laws around the type system. And that was really the fundamental shift in Dottie, right? Yeah, that yeah. Was like, Dottie is all gonna... about the dot calculus based compiler okay. mm-hmm. for the type system. That was one of the core, core things for Scala 3. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's been in research at EPFL for, I don't know, five, maybe more years. I'm, Martin's probably been thinking about it for 10 years. So, Well, and it seems like other people would have been doing work on, you know, it's it's all PhD research kinds of things. And yeah. I'm sure that's been going on for decades. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess uh, performance improvements to the compiler also, like that you can get a lot better compiler performance. You mean the compiler's faster? 
I think it's supposed to be. I don't know if it is yet. I don't know okay. how much benchmarking they've actually done. But also, but the doc about, calculus is supposed to make it so that the compiler can be a lot faster. And what about code generation? Is that code, which code generation? Well, in other words, the the quality of the code that it's generating is that going to run faster? Or oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it is. It is going now from Scala source to the new AST format, the Tasty mm. format, mm. and then to JVM bytecode if you're you know doing doing stuff on the JVM. So can they do more optimizations in that like Tasty to JVM stuff, or are they doing more? I don't know. It's a good mm-hmm. question. But I can argue. I can also see the argument of well, we're going for reliability and. You know, you can, I can write a program that runs really fast, but it's very unreliable. Right. So maybe we need to reverse the priorities and make reliability more important. I have to say, I mean, this is just a surface thing, but um, some of the syntax changes, especially the Pythonic uh, removal of the curly braces. Yeah. I just, I, I just like cleaner code. Yeah. When we have been writing code, the you and Bill and I, mm-hmm. the code is is much more concise, much more easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, the one caveat to this, and I really wish they would have taken a little bit more time to figure this out, is the inline like functor syntax. You still have to use the braces, and it just feels so. It, it stands you, out. It stands out. Yeah, you're going, oh, no braces except yeah. here. Yeah, except here. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that it, it's it's a super tricky problem to figure out how to uh-huh. do, how to get away with, get do away with the braces in that case. Uh-huh. But I, it just I wish they would sticks have. sticks out, yeah. Because I think what's going to happen is I'm just going to not use inline, inline functions like that anymore because uh-huh. it's just going to look terrible. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is always define functions outside and then reference them um, just so that I don't have to use the braces, mm. <laughs> which maybe that's ultimately better. I guess we'll see as I write more code. Yeah, that's, that is. So no lambdas at all. Not if I have to use a brace. Huh. I mean, you can still use the underscore syntax without the brace. Oh, okay. It's just like when you need like a multi-line. Mm-hmm. More and, complex lambda. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I guess if you also, if it's all single line, then I think you can just use normal, um, function syntax. It's really when you want to, when your when your functor goes down to a second line is when you have mm-hmm. to put it in braces. So I think also, wasn't there some cleanup? I mean, like Scala 2 had a lot of I want to say exploratory syntax. Well, there's also the dirty little corners, which finally snapped my brain. I don't remember what it was. There was an H involved and, and it was just like, it was just something magic. And I'm going all this time. This is the first I've seen this. It looks really important. And I'm okay. Screw it. And, um, but, but it was more, I mean, like, aren't there restrictions on what you can do with uh, operator overloading now? I don't know. So you don't end up with the ridiculous yeah. operators that people were inventing yeah. that just make the code incomprehensible. Yeah. You know, it was like, I don't know what they changed around that in particular. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the interesting things we discovered is that in Scala three, it uses the Scala two 
2.13 standard library mm -hmm. and then just make some tweaks to it. So it's interesting that like with this release of Scala 3, it's using the old standard library. So like the, the collections APIs haven't changed, which also means that they're not taking advantage yet of the Scala 3 features like built-in type classes mm -hmm. in the standard library really yet. Mm -hmm. And so I think in 3.1 is when they're going to rewrite the standard library for Scala 3. And so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens then. But, but remember we were like looking at IntelliJ and IntelliJ like linked us into the 2.13 standard library <clears throat> when we like control clicked on something and we're mm -hmm. like, that can't be right. And then we dug in and it seemed like, no, that actually is right. Like the Scala, the Scala three standard library is the 213 standard library, which I think is a great thing for interoperability between 213 and, and three. But, well, yeah, you, I mean, we learned this going from Python two to Python three and it was understandable in that case, but the pain was, so much more than I would have guessed with yeah. the, it's, it didn't seem like such a huge change going from two to three. And yet all the libraries had to change. Yeah. And so staying, being backward <clears throat> compatible with your existing libraries is, yeah. I mean, certainly if you can pull it off, that's what yeah. you want to do. They couldn't, they couldn't in, in uh, Python, Yeah, but but now they can do all kinds of amazing things in Python that they couldn't before, like yeah. adding uh, pattern matching. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly the community uptakes on Scala 3. I think there will be, I think what, what usually is the thing that holds people back is libraries, the library ecosystem. So if you're using Spark, you know, you may not be able to move to Scala 3 for a long time. Um, so you think it can't just recompile spark in scala 3 or i remember that it took them a lot of effort on the last time they upgraded scala versions oh, for spark okay. Okay. and i don't know why mm. um but i'm anticipating that it'll be a while many years <laughs> before we see spark upgrade to scala 3 which is unfortunate it um, seems like, like play and aka will probably upgrade pretty quickly Zio is, um, I think, already has RC releases for Scala three. So, um, so I, I think that'll be the interesting thing is like how quickly can the library ecosystem upgrade? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's interesting because my perception is, whereas um, the Python two to three, there wasn't a huge number of, you know, syntax changes. It was more the underpinnings yeah. that had to change and affected everything. Whereas with Scala 3, there's like really significant syntax changes. Yeah. And uh, I wonder what I haven't done is taken a Scala 2 code base and just try to compile it with Scala 3 and see like how much is kind of backwards mm -hmm. compatible from a source compatibility right. standpoint. That would be interesting. And that's going to happen. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it'd be a good. Idea. I remember they were working on some tool to make it easier to like auto migrate source code, like auto re do source code. I forget what the name of that one was, but, um, but I, I don't know what the state of that tool is, but it definitely would be nice if you could just get 90% of the way there on your code migration by running a tool. Yeah. I have to say my, Feelings. I, I with Scala two, I got to a point where 
there were just too many sharp edges and drop-offs and things like that. And I just kind of, whereas this, I have better feelings about. And and of course, part of it might be because we're starting to um, venture into the Zio territory. And that's like a whole new way of thinking about programming. Like, I, I mean, it's like. You need a firmware update on your brain. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we can pull this off. You yeah. know? I think we can explain it in a way that makes sense to people. But it is, it's like, well, it's taken me, I mean, we've bashed the idea of monads around for several years. And every time I'm going, okay, so tell me what's a monad. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a burrito. It's a diaper. It's a... yeah. Why is a monad? Well, which was the question that I yeah. should have been asking. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, but everybody wants to answer the what question yeah. and not the why. Yeah. Or I, and I don't know, I'm, I'm still baffled why people don't think about that. But yeah. I, guess, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's very strange, but, um, but anyway, um, and maybe it's just, they made, they, they made a bunch of changes, which, appealed to me on an aesthetic level. And also, you know, I've spent three and a half years writing the Kotlin book and that has moved me even more into understanding the, the functional programming world. And so anyway, I, I have right now good feelings about the possibilities for going back into Scala and not coming away bruised and burned. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think with Scala three and Zio, we should be able to have a much better happy path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, in fact, we're this week we had this. You and Bill and I had this big kind of revelation, which is, hey, maybe this book shouldn't be a dive into all of the extensive features of the language like every other book that I've done in the past yeah. has been. And maybe instead we should let that other people do that. And focus. well, and there already are like five other books. There's five other books coming out and there's, you know, Bill Venner's the, the kind of yeah. flagship book and yeah. he's going to go into yeah. all of those. That's going to be the reference work. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be interesting if instead we say in the book that, the only book that really came to mind, even though it's not exactly a mapping, but it does make sense is um, my friend, Scott Myers, uh, effective C plus plus and what an impact that made because it was saying, okay, yeah, the other books are all the features. Here's how you use the language. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And what if we went there instead of, and I got to say, I've been, You know, this has been in the back of my mind for a while, just, wow, is this my, is this my fate in life to, to explain all the low level features at some point? It's, it's, you've, you've spent your time in, uh, in penance in the seventh realm of, of hell. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the first few times it was interesting enough to try and explain, well, here's bit layouts and shifting and stuff like that. But at some point you're just going. Not again. Yeah. Not again. And and also the value I think we can create by sh- taking people to here's the most 
productive and valuable thing yeah. you can do with this language rather than here are all the language features. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited about this mm-hmm. shift in our thinking on the book. Um, when we were starting to work on the, the just language Scala three book, atomic Scala, uh, the, it kept, it, I kept having this tension in me, which was, okay, we're going to teach them something about the language. And then what I want to say on a lot of those things is, but never do it that way. <laughs> like, and so like, there's this tension of like, I, do I really want to teach you all these language features when I really think you should not be using a bunch of them? Right. It's like Printlin. Don't ever use Printlin. <laughs> That's an effect. It needs to be in an effect system. Right. Right. And, uh, and so just like, that's a silly example, but maybe not. Certainly I use Printlin for, uh, debugging. (laughs) Well, right. But, but in a production, a piece of production code and in, even in our examples, yeah. Do, you know, is, do we want to use Printlin? There won't be a Printlin in our examples. I mean, no, we'll just, it's it's not something that should be in production code. (laughs) Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, how we achieve that is going to be interesting, but, um, it's, it's yeah to to just start and show people the right the happy path <laughs> yeah well which might not be happy for them right away right yeah you know if you're coming from a language which is why is this so much harder and yeah it's like, we which, are we are gonna eat some of that cost and pain up front so that you are much happier later but i think if we I mean, the structure that I put down in the middle of the night a couple of nights ago, because it kept going around in my head, um, if we present it as, here's what what you want to do is create reliable systems. The why, yeah. The why. Start with the why. You want to have something you could put on a Mars rover. Right. (laughs) And not worry about... Bricking the thing. Bricking the thing or having your... What was it? The the French missile? The, no, the French rocket that blew up, and that was a software problem. Yeah. That was yeah. I don't know years ago, okay. um, many years ago. But you know, you you don't want you you don't want people going. It's the software guy's fault. Yeah, you know, person's fault. You yeah. you don't <laughs> you 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 don't want that. You know, I mean, in any of your systems, yeah, you don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night. You don't exactly. want exactly. You and it's like you want to build a reliable system. So what is that? And how do you achieve that? And it's a very different way of looking at programming than what we've done before, but the possibilities are, and, and it's also something I think I'd be excited to go back to teaching about and consulting about. I think that would be that that would have exciting possibilities where, whereas if you tell me, well, you can come in and teach people how to do bit shifts. <laughs> Scala, I'm going, yeah. I don't know. Not that exciting. I don't know if I want to don't. Hard to motivate. Yeah. So, and we're going to try and avoid using there. We'll use it if we have to, but. Yeah. Yeah. We have to. But, but then we'll have explanations and disclaimers. Yeah. About why. Well, cause I think we're going to, I mean, or at least my current vision is we're going to have a whole section on invariance. And yeah. the benefits and, you know, how to achieve that. Yeah. So, uh, you Describe know. invariance. Um, just uh, being able to, it's like a mathematical formula. When you plug in values, you always get the same result. 
Oh, like referential transparency, sure. mutability. All of that okay. kind of stuff. So I was thinking we were talking about like type system variants. Oh, right. Yeah. Covariance and contravariance. Well, yeah, we might need to use a different term yeah. to, to make it very clear. Um, uh, yeah, referential transparency is kind of a scary term. It is. Yeah. Um, I guess that'll be one thing we'll have to figure out is yes. like how much how much do we introduce the scary terms? <laughs> well, I would say as little as possible. I don't want to scare people off. We can, you know, start with something straightforward and then we can say this is also called yeah. referential transparency yeah. or start with the why. Yes. Introduce the thing, talk about it. And then at the end, be like, oh, and some people call this referential transparency. Yeah, so if you encounter that, we'll do the same thing with that's monads. what we're talking about. And some definitely. people call this a monad. Oh, okay. What's, what's, what term will we call it? A box to put things in or a, a burrito. I just call it the burrito. burrito or a diaper. Or a, <laughs> the diaper. Jet. The diaper. Yeah. Um, well, or chainables. We, there's uh, I mean, you've probably encountered this since you have young children. There's a, uh, there's a Winnie the Pooh episode where he he's got a he's got an empty jar, and I think it's Piglet's birthday, and so he gives her gives Piglet this empty jar, and he goes, "It's a pot to put things in." It's like, well, that's what a monad is. Yeah. Oh, you just you just pass yeah. this, but I realized, oh, it's a oh, you know, thinking about all the terms, it's a container. Oh wait, it is literally a container. Uh, apparently, there are monads that are not containers. Sure. I mean, yes, but I mean, the general case is that it's a container. It's and a we tr very special container. Yeah. And we treat it as a container. It's, uh, yeah. Can be a container. Can be a container with some special properties. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is going to be fun. We'll, yeah. Yeah. It, it'll be an interesting challenge. And but we'll start with like, like, okay, why are monads important? Why? After we get, well, okay. My current vision is we start out. And we talk about reliability. Yeah. And what is, you know, what makes software reliable? And most of the, the last, I don't know, couple of decades have been spent on the creating a reliable development process with things like um, CICD and source control. Source control, all this automation to, to check your code. But then there's the other half, which is the code itself, <laughs> the structure of the code and the, you know, framework and scaffolding yeah. and everything being reliable. And that's the part that I think we haven't been focusing on. Yeah. And that's, so there's that. And that's what we're, you know, we figure, okay, if you're reading this book, you understand uh, version control, automated build. Um, You've already got testing. these other reliable things yeah, down. <laughs> those are there. That's part of your development process. Yeah. And, and also, uh, I realized versioning, not just version yeah. control, but versioning, yeah. which, I mean, we're not going to try and solve that problem, but we're going to be focused on the programming model side of reliability. Exactly. Not the practice side. Yeah. Which the, feels the like it's process reasonably side. covered, you know, not that everybody's doing it, but, yeah. but that, you know, that information is out there, but yeah, yeah. we'll be focusing on the, the programming model side. And I think one of the interesting things that makes this challenging reliability challenging mm -hmm. is concurrency. And so it'll be interesting to kind of weave that in as well, because you could imagine a world, a programming model where you were able to have great reliability, but your performance in a multi-user world or multi 
core multi-machine world was just horrible because there was only ever one instance or what you know one thread essentially and you're or waiting on tons of things out in the world right yeah and so so i think that'll be an interesting kind of cross-cutting concern to this is reliability and performance at the same time mm-hmm. um and yeah and then there's another kind of cross-cutting thing which is like software that doesn't talk to the outside world or or mutate state is pretty useless and so then you've got this whole element of of okay how do you make reliability given that you're going to talk to thing other things without weaving it through your old code like we always do yeah yeah so we we have to isolate those things which i believe we call effects that's right so we we put the effects in boxes and then we control containers jars yeah we we control those those boxes or pots or whatever and uh and then the rest of the code can be whatever we're going to call it invariant or something you know it's like never changes once you get it debugged it stays debugged yeah. you can compose it which i think is oh, an important composability aspect. that's another composability which i think is a section you know yep. because you go like, oh so you can compose code that's great what if one of those things has a problem yeah what do you do then yeah yep yeah i mean it's all starting to fit together in my brain and there's probably stuff that's wrong but i feel like we're maybe going down the right path yeah and especially having it um each section starting with what are we trying to do what problem are we trying to solve here yeah and then you know adding more of those until we get to composable effects and then whatever comes in after yeah, I'm not sure what Zeo layers do. I only saw that one. That's like the dependency injection piece. Oh, to it. okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah, definitely we'll we'll get into Z uh Z layer and um how we how we can change the environment mm-hmm. for tests or for development production. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um that kind of stuff. Without messing up our our uh, programming model that we've yep. been so careful. Yeah, see the thing is I think when we get there, it will make sense. You yeah. know, it's, and that's, of course, the goal is to, to be able to say, okay, now next step, there's another problem we want to solve. And we spend a section solving that. Yeah. Now you understand that. And now we have this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then there's like the data modeling piece, which I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll talk a bit about. And I, I think we talked about that last week on the podcast about how representing your, representing your, uh, your types as as um, modeled as accurately to the real world as possible, um, right? Which seems like it should be obvious, but I guess yeah. we get. I have well, and I guess I, the way I've seen it is like, oh yeah, when you have a real world system, you can say, ah, oh, there's a ship and it has a container, and the container has products and stuff, and you can yeah. make that. But then there are the internal pieces of your code you know yeah. like uh, uh just the piece the, the software construction pieces yeah and so there's that you know which, which part are you doing yeah. and then we had a discussion a little discussion about um i think we were talking about uh oh i know i asked you hey why is the data you know in functional programming you've got the functions and then you have the data structure that it operates on. And that's 
invariant doesn't change, you know, and then function acts on it and it creates a new data structure. Why couldn't you do that with objects? Yeah. You know, just say, okay, anytime I make a change to the object, I hand you back the changed object and the original one stays the same. That seems like it would be a, a nice functional object compromise. And you said that you did that, but then when you started to compose it's objects, the nesting. Yes. Yeah. When you use composition, it becomes it. So when you nest these like data classes or whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. if they're immutable and you need to change something deep down that hierarchy, then it becomes nasty because then you have to do this like dot copy and then change the thing and then dot copy and named name parameters in the copy function like help with that. But it just gets pretty ugly. The programming model feels feels not nice. And so so for that particular problem, there's been some work done around what's called lenses. Mm-hmm. And lenses allow you, allow you to define a kind of query of your object graph. And then when you want to mutate down in the nested structure, you say, all right, here's my lens that's going to tell you where to mutate. And then you tell it the new value. And then it does all the nastiness, copy, whatever stuff for you to do that mutation. Um, it's not a mutation, but do the do the deep copy with the with the updated value and give you back that that uh, most external object. And so it's a lot nicer programming model for dealing with nested data class. Right. And I had heard the term and I think I tried to understand it, but again, I didn't know what problem it was trying to solve. Yeah. And so it didn't make sense to me. And you said that these have only been partially successful or they're not, they're not widely used. Okay. Um, Maybe because people don't understand the issue. The Well, the syntax on the one that I've used is, is it's a little scary because yeah. it uses like a lot of operators and mm. like, Kind of what you want is a query syntax that is more familiar. And so remember a link in mm-hmm. C sharp? L-I-N-Q. Yeah. Right. C sharp. And it's, yeah. it, it's, it's really nice kind of um, programming model for doing object queries, essentially. Right. And if you could have a syntax more, more similar to that mm-hmm. would be nice. But kind um, of separating the data representation from the object yeah. and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this in a particular way. And then the rest of your object is going to be what yeah. you're used to. So I, I, I think that there actually is a lot of potential for making lenses a lot easier in Scala three because of the GADT stuff that they are doing, the derived, derived uh, type classes, generalized abstract data types. Is that uh, what GADT G- stands for? Something like that. It's uh, something abstracted. Uh, oh, okay. I'm spacing on it, but um, I don't understand what GADTs are at all. But okay. GADTs are like the mathematical category theory, Haskell, whatever that that is um, the foundation for for having the compiler derive things for you. And mm-hmm. so serializers are like the serializers and deserializers are the um, canonical example, but I think that lenses could actually be mm. significantly improved with mm. with um, with GADTs and derived type classes. But we'll see.
could be totally wrong about that. I'll have to have somebody that knows what they're talking about. Tell us more, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see how, how Scala three does make lenses uh, more approachable. I think that there's stuff in there that will. Um, so in our book, what'll be interesting is do we like default to turning on the, um, the, the new equality stuff in Scala three. So Scala three has an optional feature which I think we turned on. No, I don't know if we turned it on in our example code that we were working on. But so you know how in in Java you can compare any two objects. Say are these two things equal? And because there's a um, dot equals on on object on the, the mm-hmm. top level um, object, and this can this actually is a source of of bugs because there's oftentimes where you are comparing things that you shouldn't be comparing. Maybe you made a mistake and it's just a bug or whatever. But Scala three has this optional feature where it actually uses type classes to do equality. And so uh, out of the box, there's probably a type class that allows you to compare an int and a string, for example. Maybe there I can't remember, but but um, let's say that that type class didn't exist if you try to go string you know equals equals uh an int then the compiler will say hey you can't compare these two things because i don't know i don't have any information about how they should be compared and and so um so this will be an interesting thing in our book is like okay if we want to create reliable software if that's our goal then we probably need to turn on this new universal equality thing because because it's just a better way to be reliable. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's certainly some pain with that because then you can't just say equals equals and and uh, and you know have it magically work. <laughs> so magically work or not work sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's a lot of blunders that uh, and, and it's confusing. I mean, there's a lot of explanation you have to do in because right. mostly because you've got the primitive types and you have, you know, regular objects and yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, thankfully, case classes and Scala have the equals implemented for you. I think that's true in Kotlin data classes as well, right? Like yes, the equals. Oh yeah, is, no, that's is, it. And I mean, one of the things about you know records and case classes and data classes and I forget what they call them in Python. You know, I mean, that's why it's been this sort of sweeping change throughout at least some of the languages is because all of those extra functions that you had to write by hand were just, uh, you know, breeding grounds for errors. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. why didn't we do this before? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's so obvious. And also, I the more I think about it, the more I go, you know, when you serialize and deserialize something isn't it mostly like a data class or case class or what you know right. one of these data yeah. transfer objects yeah, we can yeah. generalize yeah. to that idea and it's like you know mostly it's not the whole object that you want to serialize and deserialize it's just that data structure part yeah and so and i think the you know, I haven't delved into this, but it, what little I looked at for Kotlin was that that's where its focus was. If you had a data class, it could automatically serialize and deserialize it, which is really mostly what you'd want, I would think. You yeah. don't want magical functionality coming along with your 
object because we learned in Java that that just threw open the door to <laughs> to All sorts bad of code issues. You yeah, know, you know. Yeah, yeah. The the GADTs again are I think going to emerge with Scala three as being just so much better of a way to do all this. One of the strong features. Yeah. I think with serialization and deserialization, one of the biggest challenges that you get into with it is that oftentimes the way that you want to represent your object in memory is not the way that it's represented in the serialization system in the, you know, the serialized form. And so then you've got this mismatch and then you need to provide some way to configure it. And, and the way that, that type classes enable you to do that kind of overriding from the default mm-hmm. is where you see, I, I think a lot of the value there. Um, and it's, it's, so the way that we do this a lot in the world of Java and Kotlin is with annotations. Right. And so then you have to go like, figure out like what annotation do you know, do I need to use here to give some metadata to the thing that's doing the parsing? But then of course the thing that's doing the parsing has to, you know, know how to deal with the weird thing that you're trying to do. So there has to like be an annotation. And then if you're using annotations, most of the time those are going to actually run at runtime using reflections. You've got all the pain with that. And, uh, and then you can use like capped, like the annotation processor in Kotlin to do the annotations. That's what Kotlin X serialization actually does is it's, um, I think it's using cap, but I'm not certain on that, um, to do that annotation processing at compile time, essentially like a macro. And it turns out that type classes are just so much better of a way to, to deal with this whole problem. Well, and this is the first place I think I encountered the idea of versioning as a necessary part of your system because they were way back when I was first figuring out how serialization and deserialization worked, which my first exposure was in early Java. And they're going, well, see, one of the problems is you might change your data structure. And so Mm -hmm. you have to have versions and the thing has to read the version. And it was all very hacky. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like built in. And then years and years later, this idea that Unison starts to integrate, which is like, yeah, that's true with every piece of your code. Yeah. Anytime you change your code, it's a new version of the code. And pretending that it's still the old version is a super bad idea. Yep. And one of the reasons that we have so much uh, security problems with our code. Yeah. And then you yeah. and you start thinking about well, it. One pain know. of upgrading. because Right? Yeah. Right? Because, well, yeah. How do you upgrade when things don't have reliable versioning on yeah. them. And it's, yeah, once you start thinking about it, you just go, oh, this whole thing is a nightmare. Yeah. And without having language support for it. Yeah. And so it's like, I wonder how you, you know, it seems like there might be some way to backdoor something like that into Scala. I mean, it would probably require tooling and libraries and stuff to yeah. pull it off, but so that anytime you changed your Scala code, it would automatically create a new version number on it so that, you know, your, yeah. your pieces would have to be put together. Yeah. That, use the old one or if you're going to update. I think that the tasty stuff is supposed to try to help with this, mm-hmm. um, at least in some way. So that'd be interesting. I think that people are using evolvable 
uh, serialization technologies like protobufs now mm-hmm. as a as a way to isolate and deal with this the, these issues as well. Because with protobufs, if you change the data structure, you can only append. Right. Okay. And so it, it prevents you from, and it, and if you try not to do append, what happens? Does it say this is a, you have to name this something differently or? Uh, technically, technically, I mean, you could do whatever you want. You can screw it up. So I guess the pattern is that you number your protobuf fields and you only ever append to that list. You never go in and change an exist an already defined, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like, it, it is up to you as the developer to have pra- a practice around that. There's nothing actually that enforces it. Okay. It's just that if you don't do it this way, then you're going to run into runtime <laughs> errors because you. So will... the runtime will actually report to you that this is not working. This is broken. Yeah, I, I think in the case of Java, you'll get an exception if you try to deserialize something that is not in the correct protobuf form or mm-hmm. whatever. So okay. Um, so maybe maybe protobufs are at least taking a significant step towards yeah fixing there's the there's some there is something really great in the idea of protobufs mm-hmm. um because it, it does isolate us from a lot of these issues and maybe that's something we do in the book but i'm not totally convinced on protobufs as the solution primarily because as proto- the solution for uh serialization and deserialization okay. mainly Mm-hmm. Um, as like the universal, all, all, all figured out <laughs> solution because protobus, um, almost, I think universally, maybe there's exceptions to this. I think require like compiler plugins, a com- uh, not a compiler plugin, sorry, a build plugin to generate the code for you, the stub code for you from mm-hmm. the protobuf definition sure. and, that that method of code generation to me um has some some issues with it and so um so I'm not, that's part of that's part of why i'm not totally convinced yet that but that apparently is, it's practical enough that google uses it like all over the place yeah I, but there are some trade-offs to that like mm-hmm. there um in the case of google they're using the mono repo and have all this tooling around the mono repo. And mm. you know, there's, there's probably a number of things that make it work well for Google that if you're using it outside of Google, you may not necessarily get. Um, so as an example, one of the reasons why I don't like build plugins is that oftentimes the build plugins don't work. They're generating code that is then they're generating code before the compiler runs. And mm. And there are oftentimes issues with with that process. Um, one is like how do how does incremental does incremental compilation work well with that? Mm. Uh, what if I what if I like want to do something with a macro? <laughs> like you know, there's um, code gen. There are there are some downsides to code gen. One uh, another one is. Um, Oftentimes the, the code that's being generated, I, I kind of care about it. Like I want it to maybe like, like, uh, be, I want my API to, to be written in a certain way. Let's say like, I don't want my generated code to use exceptions. I instead want it to use options. 
uh, and return options with, mm-hmm. without exceptions when mm-hmm. it tries to like deserialize something. Well, you can't, there's no hooks like to, to be able to do that. There's no, there's mm-hmm. no, you can't go in and change how that necessarily change how that, that code generator is actually writing the code for you. Um, Could you insert a layer in between you and the protobuf to, you know, change the exceptions into. I don't know. Um, maybe you could, I mean, yeah, you could probably have a code modifier. So you'd mm-hmm. like do your code generator, you do your code, mo- code generator modifier, but then it just starts to feel like X doclet. And I don't ever want to go back to like what X doclet was. Um, X doclet oh, was an annotation based code generator for Java because writing for EJBs, documentation, writing EJ, you used, you, oh. it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't annotation based. It was document. So in the document block is where you would put your X doclet annotations. Um, cause I don't even know if Java had actual annotations yet, but anyways, you would do them in documentation and then X doclet would run and pull out all the code, um, doc comments, generate code, you know, based, based on, on the, the information. That so was, it was, so it was, yeah, it must've been before annotations must've been. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, it was God, the, the things that I ran into in that world, just to put a bad taste in my mouth for <laughs> code generation in that way, I would so much rather use macros. Macros have their own pain because they, you know, they're very much more black boxy. You can't just go in and see the code that was generated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would so much rather use macros for code generation essentially. Yeah. Cause at least you're working with something that has passed through the compiler first or partway right. through the compiler and you have a yeah yeah so oh so in the scala 3 world i've seen a few experiments specifically around protobufs um and type classes and gadts and so i think that'll be an interesting area of exploration is like can we use protobufs in scala 3 and not use like build plugins and, and like can it be nicer hmm. nice enough where i won't be offended by it Hmm. Um, Josh Rett has been doing some exploratory work on that front. And then there's also a library called Scala PB, uh, which I haven't looked at at all, but I'd be interested to see how they do this, um, and how they will do it for Scala three. And then there's also G, uh, Zio GRPC, which I need to look into, which is the GRPC layer. And who's writing that? I don't know. Oh, okay. Somebody. <laughs> is it somebody in the... Well, presumably in the Zio community, but at the yeah. company, maybe? I don't think that. Oh, okay. Yeah, just company. But. So, so there's some, so people are seeing possibilities for making. Making this all better. <laughs> a, a more pleasant process. Yeah. You, well, that's so we'll pretty explore all this for our book. Cause you know, yeah. I think that probably um, system, inner system communication is probably something doing it reliably. Is oh, something we'll have to cover. I mean, if we can get there, that would certainly be pretty amazing kind of problems to solve, you know, especially because what is our, what is our model? It's uh, I mean that, you know, what successful model do we have? It's um, you know, the Swedish phone company. uh, Oh, Erlang. Erlang, you know, Erlang and Elixir seem like they're the most successful enterprise enter. Well, you know, big distributed Mm. system with lots of processes. Yeah. Uh, And that's, that's let it fall down and prop it back up. Yeah. Let it crash and then restart it and restart it, which is a fascinating model, yeah. but seems like 
maybe we could do better. Maybe we, we definitely can do better. Uh-huh. Um, and this is the actor model that I've used in Akka and, and mm-hmm. for distributed systems, it's certainly one model, but, and gRPC is another model and Kafka is another model. And so there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's building distributed systems. There's a, whole lot of approaches and I'm interested to see how in our book, how we want to, if that's a topic we want to tackle and which way. Yeah. How far we can get and whether that, you know, if it's. Zio in particular has some great stuff just kind of built into Zio around this. Like we're talking about retries just as an example of retries in your typical imperative um, system it's painful to do retries. And so usually I just don't, <laughs> or you can like punt to, uh, now the, the, um, the meshes, the, uh, service message meshes like Istio, mm-hmm. um, or Envoy, they'll, they'll have, they have the ability to do retries for you. So you kind of can externalize mm-hmm. that concern, but I've never been real fond of like having that kind of logic external to my code. It just feels like something that actually should be a concern of my code is like, how long do I want to tree for retry for? What do I want to do if my retries, you know, if I fail on my retries, that kind of stuff. So um, that's what you, that's I want it to be in my code. And so, so Zio has built into it very simple retries. You just Mm -hmm. do dot retry, give it a number and it'll retry. But then I think that the reason why Zio has been able to create a better programming model around this is because of, because it's an effect system and, and that is a much better foundation to do that kind of logic on. Because it maintains control of all the the effects rather than just, because if you think about the way exceptions were presented originally was that, oh, and one of the things that you could do is you can't, exceptions allow you to set up a retry, you know, as long as you like, you know, capture all of these things, then it's possible to go back and do a retry, but you had to, it was, it's kind of a very low level way to do that. Cause you would have to then say, oh, what, what are all the things I need to, to hold on to here in order to achieve this retry when I get this <laughs> right. exception. And then you have to have a whole bunch of clauses with your exceptions and then go back and do it. And then, boy, the chances of you getting it right <laughs> would be uh, right. maybe. Whereas if you could just say, okay, I'll have to do it. And, and it. and it seems like, well, ultimately, how do you recover from an exception? I mean, e- an exception is either a programming error or it's something typically IO, you know, you try something, doesn't work, you don't know why. Your only choice is to say, oh, well, I'll retry. Right. And so if that is your one choice, yeah. then boy, making that simple would make it possible. Yeah. Whereas I feel like yeah. exceptions, well, if the programmer is expert enough, right. they could they could put together a retry, but that's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we just don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So typically we don't. Yeah. It's funny because there are these things I keep noticing. It's like if this development system makes it easy enough, you go, oh, sure, I'll do that. But it, it, it can just be a, f- a hair that makes it a little too hard. And so you don't do it. Yeah. You don't include it. Yeah. So that could be pretty revolutionary. 
yeah to be able to retry easily. yeah and this is just one example of kind of recoverability or attaching um attaching al- alternate flow logic to mm. effects is so much easier than when you try to do this with a non effect system because with effects you're not actually when you define your effect, it's not actually doing anything. It has to be run, it has to be interpreted. So really all that you're doing is building up this like graph of things that should happen. And then the runner is what's actually talking to the outside world. So I think the effects end up being a lot better way foundation to build on for, for attaching, attaching alternate flows to, mm-hmm. to your main flows. So I had it a little insight during the week because you know, you and Bill have been throwing around the term effects. I'm going, what does that mean? And then I was thinking about, you know, what a pure function is. And I go, it has no side effects. And then I go, side effects. Oh, things that change that are kind of outside of the, you know, main goal of your function. Or, I mean, a side effect could be part of, I mean, like when you do print line, that's a side effect. That's a side effect. You know, it's like, oh, you're modifying the console. So it could be the goal of that function. In fact, if you have uh, any an ex- uh, a statement rather than an expression, well, the statement relies on having a, an effect happen rather than the return value. Yeah. Which, yes. you know, when you think about it now is, oh, this is frustrating. Why do I, yeah. why, why do I want to do that? Yeah. And it's, so it's like with a lot of languages, the idea of an effect is just, oh, sure. That's, that's right. just the way it worked. The and then when you start really thinking about it and the problems that come from having an effect from your calling this piece of code rather than producing a result. A value, yeah then you start going, oh man, it's, and it's all woven into these languages. Yes. Yeah. This, this, and then it's, then it begins. So now it's starting to click. I go, oh, that's the effect you're talking about. Yeah. It's what we used to call side effects, but it means any change in your environment. That, any talking to the outside world. <laughs> yeah. That, that isn't, um, yeah. isn't producing a result for your, from your expression. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's um, even simple. So Printline is a good example of an mm-hmm. effect that's talking to the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, random number, that's an effect. Asking a clock for what time it is, that's an effect. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is is talking to the outside world. And um, and you don't know, I mean, you, you can't say, oh, I know what I'm going to get from this. I, right. I know what's going to happen. Whereas with a pure function... It's like, yeah, we put these values in. We're always going to get those values out totally. And once we get testability becomes so much easier because when you're running your tests, you give it a random number generator that's deterministic. Mm -hmm. Which is what I've always done in my book examples is I've seeded the random number generator or something. So I always get the same results. And I didn't know that I was like controlling yeah controlling the effect yeah 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 so it's starting to yeah starting to come together making the effect unaffectful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah so it's going to be super fun in our book to explore all this and try to teach effects in a way that is useful and about the why about the problem that people are trying to solve everything's not not just the 
Because there is a mathematical foundation to this, which is great to have, but not necessarily useful when you're trying to teach somebody. Um, it's nice that that when you have an effect system, most of your code is pure functions. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. really nice. And there is mm -hmm. a wonderful mathematical... Yeah, and then when you start that. assembling these pure functions, the resulting function has the same reliability as the pure functions. Yeah, exactly. And you're able to control that. Yeah. yeah. But but that's not necessarily the the why. It doesn't no. relate to what the, benefit the, the why is not the user. math that proves it. That's and right. well, the same thing is true for monads. Is oh, absolutely. There's the wonderful mathematical model underneath monads which make them amazing and useful. A but, monad is a monoid in the category of endofunctors. Yeah. I still have no those idea are just, what that actually Those means. are just noises I'm making with my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it is wonderful that there no are these mathematical algebraic laws underneath this mm -hmm. stuff that allow us to have expectations about how it's going to work. But I'm totally but, happy to say math backs us up on this. Yeah. Period. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you want to learn about the math, well, I don't know. You'll Here, have to research it yourself. In our book, we will not go into the math. No, because it doesn't help. What helps is to understand why we're doing this. In fact, uh, there's this author, Simon Sinek, and oh, he has yeah. a book called Start With Why. Yeah. And uh, I found that to be because it, it's it's actually talking about you personally. It's like, why do you do the things you do? And it takes a while to figure out mm. why you do the things you do. But once you understand that, you can look at all of these problems and going, does this fit with my why? And yeah. if it doesn't, I, you know, should figure out how not to do that. Yeah. Because that's not going to motivate me in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. So we're. We're going to try and do that. We're going to try and do that. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, what I do wonder is with Scala 3 and with Zio, I think, is there an opportunity for Scala to to kind of get back into the spotlight, gain some gain some momentum on the adoption front? Not that I like really care, but because I, I like Scala and I'm going to use it. But Scala has definitely waned in terms of its... Uh, it's the the energy kind of around it, the the interest in it, and I think Zio and Scala three have an opportunity to bring some of that back. But but I do think that it will take the the starting with why because because they didn't do that with Scala two, and we had things like Scala Z, which we now realize was trying to make Scala be Haskell, and if you simply knew that going in, that could that would have changed your experience. Yeah. But there, I mean, whenever I tried to look at it, uh, watch videos on it or anything, it was just like, no, I couldn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on with it or why I should try and understand this thing at all. Yeah. So if we can present it that way, I think it's possible. Um, especially cause I mean, look at Python. Nobody in the Python community was worried about adoption. Hmm. They were going, we're making this language because we like it. If you don't like it, use the language you like. We're yeah. not trying to evangelize this yeah. to you. We're, but there were other values in the Python community. Like a big one was to be a friendly community, nice to everybody, hmm. not never... Um, you know, denigrate somebody for not understanding something on and on. And the whole structure of the community was built on that principle. Yeah. And 
I think um, that was not a concern, let's say, for Scala 2. And also, I think there was not a concern for, I think there was this interest in experimentation that Martin had, which is great, as long as you're all you care about is experimenting. And I feel like Scala 3 has uh, done a lot of things, at least in our in our initial skim over it. I keep saying things, I go, that seems friendlier to me. Mm. That seems more accessible. And I think the community needs to, well, I, and I don't know how long ago Bill Venters called me and he said, so how did Python, you know, get the, the create this friendly community? And I said, well, basically from, from scratch, from day one, you know, this was something that was important to Guido, like yeah. just, and like f- a fundamental um, principle or, or yeah. foundational part of the language was, yeah. you know, and you see it reflected in the language itself, you know, yeah. make it, easy and accessible. And um, so I think there, there needs to be some work done because, you know, if you walk into, I, I had a number of experiences where I'd go into some kind of chat room or news group and just get flamed. Yeah. And it didn't bother me because eh, I've, you know, I've had enough experience <laughs> struggling with things that I know. Eh, yeah, I I don't know You're lots good of things. At wearing the, putting that asbestos suit on, and, and it wasn't wasn't not even that. It's just like, yeah, I don't know things. So telling yeah. me that I'm I don't know things isn't going to bother me. Right. You know, that's why I'm here. But if you're going to be mean, then I'm going to go someplace else. Yeah. And uh, I think you know, I don't know how much of that is still in the community, but um, I think most of it's been rooted out. I think. Hope and, so. and then if you're in sub communities like Zio, I found Zio to be much more friendly and inviting and mm-hmm. helping of beginners. And, mm-hmm. Well, so. we're probably going to spend some time in those communities as we try and make sense of all this stuff. Yeah. So, um, but I would say those things are what, but, but also I really feel like the fact that Python never cared about how popular it was or how mm. much, you know, that wasn't its focus. Its focus was on making the experience great. And now it's you know yeah. competing with Java for number one slot, yeah. which nobody ever expected that, yep. you know, it's that true. was just, that wasn't the goal. That yeah. wasn't, that wasn't the care. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there was no marketing department for Python like there was for right. Java. Was it was it the language or was it the marketing? Yeah, yeah. you know you always have to wonder that. Yeah, and and it was the enterprise sales team for sure. Oh my gosh, and that was such. I mean, think about the billions of dollars that were lost because somebody hacked together enterprise Java beans and pushed it on everybody, and they go, "Well, Sun obviously engineered the heck out of this thing, so it must be good. Let's use it." Why isn't it working for us? Why? Oh my gosh, what a what a mess that was. I, I feel like if we could keep marketing out of <laughs> languages altogether and just let them everything stand on its own merit. Yeah. Uh, that would just that would, <laughs> that would be a step in the right direction. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Well, Scala 3, ZO2. Reliable software, here we go.
We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And we'll keep our listeners <laughs> apprised of <laughs> the developments. Of whatever stories we currently have in our heads. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you.